I can't take any of this seriously unless I know who I'm talking to. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Happy Friday. TGIF. We love to say that around here. Hi, I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are joined by bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. How are you today, sir? Doing very well. Happy Friday to my Floridians. How's life in the South? Oh, wait, I'll actually interrupt. I've been jabbed on Tuesday. I joined the ranks with you. Oh, Excellent. Yay. Well done, sir. And which one did you get? I had the Pfizer done. Uh, it's Pfizer's still good. just a little sore in the in the yeah. old uh, shoulder area, but everywhere else, yeah. I'm doing pretty good. Just a little tired afterwards, Excellent. but yep, I'm Excellent. well on my way. Oh, very good. Very good. On Saturday, April 10, I got just under the wire, by the way, Ooh. I got the J&J jab. You did. Okay. Then uh, the following week, here's all this bad news coming. Wow, wait, hold on here. It doesn't appear that I am in the affected demographic. No, right away. I'm grateful. <laughs> but at the same time, I feel bad for those ladies who yes. develop blood clots and reduce blood platelets. One person at least mm-hmm. has passed away. And I do feel bad about that. But you know, Benny, I look at it this way. I decided to go the one and done route. I'm not unhappy with it. My side effects have been exactly as yours. A sore arm for a while feels okay now. It took about seven, eight days before I didn't notice any tenderness. But given the consequences of not getting the vaccine and having to worry about being exposed to COVID, I'll Mm -hmm. take that little bit of discomfort. And I'm in agreement with you too. And is Washington, the the Seattle area in particular, home base for us on the radio, (laughs) Are they opening up? Is there a different attitude about spatial distance and about mask wearing? Uh, we're still uh, proponents of even whether you have the shots or not, or still just to wear it no matter what, just to protect everyone, I think. Good. And we've been doing it. I mean, we were the first ones to uh, launch this whole COVID-19 thing, so to speak, here was yep. on yep. Our, our home yep. soil. So it's... um. We're, we're definitely doing the right thing. You see all the reader boards, you know, when you're out driving around, I'll say, you know, stay safe, mask up regardless. And that's always a good thing just to kind of keep pushing through. Yeah, very good. Well, I'm glad you got yeah. uh, a vaccine, at least mm-hmm. one. Yep. And Suzanne's got one shot to go. I, I have I've had one shot and I have one to go after May 5. There you go. So, I'm I'm going to be on the 11th, so we'll be around the same uh, time frame. There. We are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to be pretty close. Uh, Here in buddy. Florida and throughout much of the nation, from my understanding, uh-huh. just watching the news, the supply of vaccine vastly exceeds the demand. People are reluctant. They're hesitant. It's true to such an extent that a mall, a central part of a local mall here in Sarasota, where Suzanne and I live, has walk-up service, yeah. 16, age, age 16 mm-hmm, and up, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they can't give the stuff away. <laughs> you know, I laugh, but I mean, really, compliance here, if we're going to achieve anything like right. so-called herd immunity, requires that you participate. Right. And looking at statistics from here in this state in particular, you know, we are kind of, se- our our mountain range is kind of like separating the two sides of the state. You know, we have one side oh, yeah. it's a, it, is acting yeah. a little different than the, the other side of the state, which um, yeah. that was a potential choice for me. It was to drive over to the eastern side to get the vaccine because mm-hmm. um, there are more availabilities uh, than over on yeah. the west side because there's just more population. So 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But not always easy to make that drive though. No. And that's the it, thing. Cause a lot of people are saying you have to go back to the same location. I'm like, all right, well then you have to kind of manage. All right. Well, you know, time on the road yeah. and then, you know, blah, blah, blah. So. Yeah. I don't know how the weather is up there in the mountains. I can remember driving through in <laughs> April and there was a lot of snow at the top of the mountain. And I'm kind of uh, aghast now watching the weather reports where this is April uh, 23 and there's a huge amount of snow in the Northeast. Yeah. And, and I'm going, wow, this is just so weird. They have little, all these snowstorms. A little everywhere. bizarre. And we had 80 last weekend here. I don't know if I told you that, but it was pretty warm. We heard. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So early spring, huh. early summer, we look, but ah, it's all good. Well, good. Well, glad you uh, got your first vaccine, Benny. Very happy to hear that. You, sir, are a responsible citizen. Why, thank yes. you very much. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk to a solid citizen right here and now. We're talking to a gentleman who is on with us for the fourth time. That's great. You know, and if he came on four times a year, it would be fine by me. He leads an endlessly fascinating life. He does. And he is committed to the pursuit of investigations that would scare a lot of people, turn off others. Scare me. Intrigue the heck out of us all the time. Plus, he's a nice gentleman. Carl Petri was born with an unusual psychic and mediumistic ability to see and communicate with the dead, see into the past, and touch the troubled hearts of the living. Throughout his life, Carl has helped people reconnect with loved ones who have passed, in order to resolve their grief. He has also given a voice to the dead who wish to be heard and who have urgent messages and stories to tell. Carl Petri is able to visit locations and get accurate information about history, events, and people from the past and present. He is empathic and is able to tune into the emotions of others, past and present alike. So for the fourth time, we're happy to say hello, Carl Petri. Glad to have you with us. And a good morning to you. And it's it's my pleasure to be here today. Thank you very much. Very good. One of the things that Gary was talking about in touting your appearance with us today is he was talking about your being a filmmaker and I scratched my head and I said, I know him as a paranormal investigator. I don't know Carl as a filmmaker. What did you film? Let's see, I filmed uh, documentaries, uh, also um, uh, horror movies vampire oh. movies oh my gosh the movies like that because my I normal my normal work was i'm a forensic video and, and photographer that's what i did for a living so i and, always had a camera in my hand and you did that like with with uh, uh regional authorities like for medical examiners and police and things like that yes or, or the uh, government agency like the fbi People like oh that. my God! Now, see, Gary, I never knew this about Carl. This is fascinating. He's a multifaceted man, Suzanne. We just need <laughs> to come to terms with that. I mean, it's. I was wondering as we plan to have you on again, Carl. I asked Suzanne, what kinds of things do you think Carl would be interested in filming anyway? There's a way to make money. That's justification enough there. But what is it that really intrigues your directorial eye? Because you've got to aim that camera at something or someone. Well, when it comes to making films, it's got to be entertaining. And I like to put a spin on it where it's not like your normal everyday horror movie. Um, I... Uh, filmed a vampire movie where a vampire dies because of a blood illness. 
and interesting oh it went really well and uh the first real movie that i shot by myself was called the ironbound vampire and um I had really. So no I, I think that was a release from 1997, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> Thank you, Benny. <laughs> and I had He's putting little notes up here for us as we talk to you. <laughs> and my budget for it was two thousand dollars. Oh, really? Wow. Today, I've sold over eighty-six thousand copies. That is terrific. You know, so the the films are good. People enjoy them. And uh, I did an investigation, a psychic investigation. And that was another movie I made called The Ghost of Angela Webb. Right on the chart, it should be right there. <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, that was shot for very, very low money, probably less than 4,000. And uh, it sold uh, right now about 68,000 copies. Well, I think that's great, but it, it just suggests a question to me, Carl. If you're having that kind of success, did you experience about a professional jealousy when you heard about the Blair Witch Project? Because that was pretty much, you know, uh, it was done on a very small budget. There was a lot of the handheld camera, which by the way, made some people ill. They couldn't like stand me. all the jarring yeah. camera right. angles and the panning going on. As you looked at a project like that, what were you thinking? Well, I, it was fantastic for them. I mean, they took um, uh, a concept and they made a, a success out of it, you know, and they didn't have to have a major studio to do it. And uh, I think that's wonderful. Now, see, for me, uh, I happen to know a lot of people from director Ed Wood, uh, that director from years ago. Oh, sure. Oh, my gosh. Gary okay. loves Ed Wood. All right. Now, I knew Ed Wood's people. And when they come into the New York area, they stay at my house. So then we sit around at our dining room table and they tell me how Ed Wood cut corners to make his films. And then I just say, I can't believe it. I got to do that. <laughs> and uh, that's how I was able to cut corners. And I know a lot of things about Ed Wood and I know a lot of things about what he did uh, that is mind boggling. Well, that'll take us down to the bottom of the hour in our break, <laughs> because I'll tell you this, Carl, thank you for saying this because I have been a fan and much of the cinematic world remains a fan in love with Ed Wood. Nobody said anything about him being a good director or, or that his films were good. They're, they're famous for being hilariously bad, especially Plan 9 from Outer Space. But the fact is, the man had such a passion for filmmaking. He was so in love with the cinematic arts that he poured himself and attracted to himself people who similarly were so in love with movies that they thought they would make them and that they would be great. The results almost didn't matter. It was the process and the passion for a guy like Ed Wood, don't you think? It is, but now I got a question to ask you. Okay, I'm ready. The, the movie Gandhi, remember the movie Gandhi that won all these awards and everything? Absolutely. Yes. Did you ever see the movie? I did only many years later. I saw it on TV. And when you Dang. mentioned Gandhi, and it, of course it was brilliant there, but the, the, the cinematography, of course, the acting, the directing, the script, it was sure. brilliant. It was up against E.T. All right. Now tell me something. How many times did you watch the movie? Exactly once. Okay. Play Nine from Outer Space. How many times did you watch that movie? 
Oh, I would say in my case, it's been, because it's not always easy to find if you don't own it, right. but I have seen it on late night horror shows across the years. I would say at least four times. So tell me something, when you think about it, which is the better movie? Oh, movie I had a much, four much times better Gandhi. Yeah, a plan nine from outer space uh, because I'm laughing. I like a good laugh. It's, it's so much of the laughter is unintentional because of the, um, the logistical nightmare that was putting together that film on a threadbare budget there. But I feel a love for somebody who would make a movie, no matter how bad you can see that they put their passion into it. I will always respect that regardless of the actual result in cinematic terms. That's what I mean. It's like, uh, it's the purpose of a film is to be entertaining. And then I always look at people and say, how many times did you see Plan 9 or one of his other films? And they always say more than once. But when it comes to Gandhi, they see it once. You know, so. Uh, yes, that's true. In fact, a co-worker of mine, just to tell you about, this speaks to popular reception of films. There, uh, my uh, buddy that I worked with in a department store was really ticked off that E.T. didn't win everything in sight come Oscar time. And he said to me, I still remember it. And this was like, what, 1983. He said, E.T. is fantastic. I didn't like Gandhi. When you have E.T., who wants to watch some movie about some stupid old Indian? <laughs> I said, yes, I recall, as a matter of fact, internationally, there was some back and forth about that stupid old Indian. Right. <laughs> they would much prefer to have some alien land and phoning home. <laughs> but point taken, because that's exactly what you're getting at, Carl, is does it entertain? Does it grab you by the heartstrings? Exactly. Now, Dolores Fuller was a good, very good friend of mine, her, uh, she and her husband, and um, they made a documentary about her husband's father, who was a great aviator, and through me, that's how that movie was made, and uh, now it's, it's quite all over the place, and a lot of uh, schools that teach aviation, they show that documentary. You know, so I was, I'm really happy about these projects that I get involved with. Oh, absolutely. I, I couldn't identify an Ed Wood movie, but I, I do recall the movie about Ed Wood with Johnny Depp. And yes. I liked that movie. The great that, film, in my opinion, a great film directed by Tim Burton. Right. And what, what was that called, Gary? Ed Wood. Ed oh, Wood. it was called Ed Wood. Yeah. And, and I, what I is your opinion that. of that film? Well, Dolores Fuller uh, sat in my living room and she pointed out every mistake in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> every bit of creative license, you mean? <laughs> yes, she, yes. And she, she uh, one of the first things she said was, she goes, Bella never said any kind of curse words. Never. He never did that. I don't know why they did that to him. No, because because Martin Landau could get everybody laughing by, oh, yeah. by just doing a spot on impression of him. And you add the cuss words, it caught people by surprise. That's shock value. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another mistake, since we're on that subject, Carl, in terms of portraying the end of Bella Lugosi's life, I found out after seeing the movie, I just did a little reading and I discovered that Whereas in the film, Edward, Bella Lugosi dies alone, virtually unmourned, except for the coterie of admirers led by Ed Wood. In reality, he had a proper Hollywood funeral that was attended by many. Right. So he was not unmourned at all. 
Mm -hmm. Are you still making films, Carl Petri? No, I'm not. And the reason for it is that people are not buying C uh, DVDs. Ah. And the only way I can recoup the money from making it is when people buy the DVDs. Okay. So Interesting. I can't get my money back, so I can't really make it. Yeah. It's fascinating wow. about these subscription services. And isn't it interesting, folks? We thought we were going to bring them on to talk about ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out the DVD world is the ghost there. But when we look at, at people's consumption habits, this is something that people sit up late at night worrying about in that industry. As you say, people don't buy DVDs. I do because I like the classics. I've got the Phil Silvers show. You can come over and we can watch some of the best episodes watching Sergeant Bilko. That's just how I run. Right. But I do take your point. And one of the problems for people, as Suzanne and I have discussed on air with a pop culture maven, is that if you subscribe to a service, it could be Netflix, of course, they're huge. Hulu, that's another one. Amazon, when you get these, if you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound, as the old saying goes. You can't select from a menu of what you want to watch. You've got to get the whole Magella. Right. So now TV costs like $500 a month because you have all these separate subscription services to which we get uh, none of them. We just get the four or five or 600 channels that we get normally through Comcast. So, yeah, without even ordering any special stuff, even just your basic cable gets you a lot. It's true. Uh, before we leave the subject of Ed Wood, <laughs> there he, he's in his glory wherever he is right now. <laughs> that, and I keep thinking uh, back to the Tim Burton film. If you've never watched it, Ed Wood, that's all you have to remember. Get Ed Wood, filmed in black and white, which was a smart directorial decision, in my view, because it takes you back to that era. Right. And it's just so funny, but it's also heartrending in places, too, because you learn that passion has its price when your individual talent is not equal to your ambition. And haven't we all been in that position at one time or another? It's so relatable. Right. But when I, I think about uh, a film like Ed Wood, I also think that, that the movie within the movie gives you some idea of Ed Wood's career. And part of it would be quite relevant today. I'm speaking of one of his movies called Glenn or Glenda, because the thing a lot of people don't know is that Ed Wood was a cross-dresser. He wasn't- Oh, I didn't know that. He was not okay. ashamed of it there. And when it comes to uh, the lady of your acquaintance, Dolores, Right. There, uh, she might have had an opinion or two about that. You can accept that if you are romantically involved with a man, either you are going to tolerate it or you are not. And that issue comes up as well as the film Glenn or Glenda speaking to an issue that we deal with in society today. That's true. And but she came to terms with it. It didn't really bother her. Uh, but it's true about her Angora sweater. Uh, she would go to different shows here and bring the actual Angora sweater that Ed Wood would wear. Hmm. She oh, says wow. it's kind of stretched out, but she said, you know, here it is. This is what he wore. Now, if I recall correctly, this was perhaps his most meaningful relationship, but it didn't, it didn't go so well with the first lady in his life. She wasn't, she couldn't come to terms with him being a crossdresser. Right. Yes. Uh, then there was Dolores, and then uh, she 
said she couldn't live that life, Ed Wood's life, you know, with these, uh, uh, making these movies, whatever. So she just broke up with Ed. And of those who made movies with him, how many are still around? Oh, geez. I don't know if any are because uh, Conrad Brooks was, uh, he played the cop and he played uh, short parts in his other films. And he was another person that I was close to. And he's in my movie, Ironbound Vampire. And uh, he stayed with me and told me stories about Ed Wood, but he's gone. He, he passed away, I believe, a couple of years back. And now there was Paul Marco, uh, who played the other cop, and he was in all of Ed Wood's movies. And, uh, you know, he passed away too. There's a scene in Plan 9 where one of the gentlemen playing, playing a policeman decided it would be good theatrics to scratch his head in wonderment at all these crazy goings on. And he's got his police revolver and he's tucking it under his cap, scratching his head. Never mind that he's about to blow his head off. <laughs> And this was the kind of stuff they did. Another one was Bella Lugosi's character wearing the vampiric cape shows up as rather a, a nebulous, mysterious character who walks through a graveyard. And in order to have gravestones, they couldn't afford actual gravestones. So they had them made out of cardboard. <laughs> and when Bella Lugosi walks past one with his cape, it touches the cardboard no, headstone no. and it's flapping <laughs> back and forth. <laughs> And they just, and Ed Wood, being Ed Wood, just leaves it in. <laughs> oh, crazy. Well, 16 millimeter film is expensive. We can't have too many takes on anything. Well, that's true. And probably you had a lot of empathy for him also, Carl, because uh, if you watch the movie, Ed Wood, and once again, I recommend it highly. That's a DVD worth purchasing. I need to get one of those on eBay for myself. It's missing in my collection there, but... Uh, one of the things that he would resort to is what a lot of us will do. You make do with what you have and with what you can get. So they would haunt the studios, no pun intended, in order to grab whatever could be available. And sometimes it meant grabbing the gear and hightailing it out of there. Sure. And he used World War II film surplus, uh, you know, for his movies. Like you would have a uh, hundred foot reel that they only used maybe 50 foot and he would buy the other 50 foot cheap and use that to make his film. So he had little tiny bits of World War II vintage um, black and white film and recycle it and make his films out of it because it was so cheap. That is fascinating. It's instructive for all of us because how many of us, regardless of our life circumstances, sooner or later have had to make do to make do with less and do what you can with it. Very right. creative. Absolutely. Very creative. Well, uh, we can touch on another subject or we can just take our break a couple minutes early because we have other things we want to talk to Carl Petrie about. Absolutely, we do. Why don't we go ahead and take our break right now? All right. We are talking with Carl Petrie, if you haven't gathered that already. He is also known as the absent witness. And we'd like to get into a little bit of that on the other side because to be an absent witness seems like a contradiction in terms, but not when you live the life and have the career of Carl Petrie. So stick around and we will get into that and more on the other side of a short break. We are Manson Mitchell and you are tuned in to Seattle's home of alternative talk, AM 1150. We'll be right back. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. 
She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom and Levi. Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities. He's been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them. But I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me, and my love for him was just immense. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Carl Petri, author of Absent Witness, sharing more stories from his career as a filmmaker and psychic investigator. On Saturday, Sharon Lynn Wyeth tells us how to connect with people in a transactional world simply by understanding how the letters in their name reveal who they are. Bringing you mastery and mystery, one hour at a time since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Tell your friends about Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our special guest this hour, Carl Petrie. Carl, if people want to get your book, Absent Witness, or if they want to find out more about what you're doing, where's the best place for them to go? Well, they could go to Amazon, you know, to most bookstores. If it's not there, they could order it. Um, And of course, the new book is coming out soon. And do you want to say anything about that? Well, it has a lot more uh, stories that the first one didn't cover, of course. It goes into more details about things and uh, also my involvement with the government. Excellent. Excellent. And thus our breakfast conversation (laughs) of this morning. There, a good friend of ours suggested late night on a phone call. It was all very hush hush there and he wishes to remain anonymous. There, but he wanted to know more about your career and you've had numerous careers carl yes. but he wanted to know more about your career in remote viewing 
particularly with regard and to the extent that you can share the applications both in military terms and espionage, quite frankly, because there has been for a generation now, I have heard talk without being able to verify a lot of it, that the CIA and the Pentagon both had a very keen interest in practical applications of remote viewing, if in fact that were a real thing. Some people say, ah, bunk, remote viewing, that's a lot of pseudoscientific hogwash. And other people say, you don't know what you're talking about. It's not only real, it is being used in high places. We have talked about it before, but I also think it would be good to start with maybe a very brief description of what remote viewing is. Okay, uh, remote viewing is the ability to uh, project your mind to a different area, anywhere in the world, and to see what goes on there. You could describe it. You could also hear things that are going on uh, strictly by just sitting at your home or, in my case, like a basement. Is it and real? that's remote viewing. Does it work? Oh, yes. Does it work such as to give you a high degree of confidence in what you are sensing? Uh, yes, it does. Now, you know, when people hear about remote viewing, the first thing that goes into their mind is the government and spying. Okay, let's just walk away from that for a moment and think about remote viewing for uh, commercial purposes or personal purposes. Uh, the government's not going to run down the street and and hand you money to uh, to spy on another country, uh, you know, so so quickly. But somebody may want you to remote view uh, a part of their company or something that goes on there, and you could be you're able to do it. In my yeah. case, for example, uh, I got a phone call from a contractor, and the contractor uh, said to me. Um, I'm doing a couple projects and I wonder what's going on at that project right now, because if I'm not there, I don't know what these people are doing. So I said, all right, give me a few minutes. And then I said, all right. I said, there's somebody sitting in a Lincoln Continental. They're looking at a job site. I described the job site and I described what was going on. And, he, and I told, you know, good or bad, I told him what was happening. And I got a call back in an hour because it took him 45 minutes to get there. And he said, you were spot on, including uh, you told me about the Lincoln Continental. And I also gave him the license plate number. And that was all Pretty done. specific. Yep. And that was also done uh, sitting in my basement. So now, they get denied. You happen to be a, a very talented psychic medium. But my understanding from having discussed this before was that this is something that people can actually be trained to do. So are you aware of people who don't have the same talent that you have still being trained as remote viewers? Well, it's only my personal feeling about that. I don't believe that everybody could be trained to do that. Okay. Because not everybody's the same and not everybody thinks the same. Uh, it's a type of personality that you could tell could do remote viewing. And a lot of people don't have the um, um, perseverance or the uh, uh, patience to do something like that. 
And no matter what they do, they'll never learn it. You know, you were we were talking about the CIA's interest in this, and you said, you know, immediately people will go to espionage. But it seems to me that if this is a real thing that can be utilized, the very best application of it would be for things like lost ships or lost airplanes. Right. To, to be able to locate those kinds of things using remote viewing would be a wonderful application. And I'm thinking right now about uh, there's some kind of lost submarine you know, at sea right now that they're Malaysian. looking for outside Malaysia and a remote viewer might be able to help get those people rescued. I've tried that before and the police do not cooperate. And the, see, the thing is with the um, remote viewing, you may have a couple agencies within the government that will take you seriously. Others won't. Uh, I recall the Scott Peterson case. Do you remember that murder case? Yes. Unfortunately, yes, yeah, I, I do. do. It was okay. ghastly. Yeah. All right. Uh, on that case, I was with uh, Dr. Joanne McMahon. She's a parapsychologist. And I called her up and I, uh, when the first hit the news and I couldn't find her body. And I said, um, I know who killed her. I know how he killed her. I know where he put the body. So I see, I'm not allowed to call the police. I asked her to do that. Call the California police and tell them I have all the information that they want to get the body and, and the person who did it and everything. Uh, so she called the law enforcement people there and they hung up the phone on her. We waited a day. I says, call them back. And she called them back and they said, they put her on hold or put her on forget. And she just hung on the phone forever. And finally she just hung up the phone. Uh, as did, I think it was a day or two later, I says, you know what, morally, this is me speaking, morally I have to tell them exactly what I know. I'm just gonna blurt it out whether they take it or not. And I told them what kind of truck that she was driven away from, who was driving it, where the body could be found, half submerged in water, gave them all the information. I said, you know what? Morally, I gave you everything. It's up to you to take it or not. And by coincidence, you won't believe they found their body. Ah. And I'm not saying I did it, but I'm just no, saying. No, I know. By coincidence, they found her in water, half submerged, mm -hmm. and they found out everything you know, that, they, uh, that they were looking for. And then what gets me is I called them back and I said, I have some more information. Would you like it? And they said, no, no. Ah. So you talk about frustration. You see, when these things happen to me, I live with this, uh, the murder and everything else for day after day, after day, after day. And when it's all over, I still get flashbacks from it. And all I get from it is they're, telling me that uh, we don't believe in it, uh, you know, so stop bothering us. There was a, a, a case on uh, TV about a missing person. Uh, this woman from New Jersey, uh, Nutley, New Jersey, uh, who went, who disappeared 20 years ago. And uh, 
they had a show where they showed these missing people, see if you could find them. So they showed her picture, whatever, which I don't watch. I don't watch anything like that because it bothers me. But a, a, a newspaper reporter asked me who lives in the town, would I know if I could help to find that woman? I said, oh, give me a picture. So they gave me a picture. And all of a sudden, all these images came into mind. And I said, okay, I'm going to throw a lot of stuff at you real quick. So have a pen or pencil record what I'm saying. And I said, she has something to do with the sex business. And then she said, she was a go-go girl in uh, New Jersey and New York. And then I went on and on and talked about her. And then I ended up saying, okay, I know where she's living. And if you want to call the police, whatever, or call the Nutley police and tell them they could look at these particular places and they will find her there. So she said, okay, she called up the police and she said, here's the information that I got where she's, where she's living at. She gave the police all the information and also my number, if he wanted to talk to me. Well, days went by, they never called me. And so uh, she asked me, she goes, they never called you? I said, no, they, they never have. So she, as a reporter, calls the Nutley police and she said, how come you didn't call him back? His answer was, it is not against the law to disappear. Oh, That's why they, they well, had a TV show about it. But he said, it's not against the law to disappear. And he dropped the whole thing. So wow. what in the world did I do all this for? Somebody was looking for her and she didn't want to be found is what it sounds like. And, and so that, that's kind of an interesting dilemma, uh, a, a very human dilemma. You know, if, if somebody disappears, but the person who disappeared really doesn't want to be found. Right. When I think of this story you're telling us, I think of how appropriate it would be for an episode of, for example, the Rockford Files. I could see, you know, Jim Rockford going to find someone goes to a great deal of effort and discovers that she didn't want to be found in the first place. Right. So, you know, the, the uh, stories of remote viewing, whatever, may sound fascinating. But on the flip side, there's people there that rather not find somebody than to give in to say such a thing exists. And I learned also Ingo told me that many years ago. That, you Ingo know, most being cops Ingo Swan. Yes, Ingo Swan. And he was, was he the original, did he create remote viewing or design it? He was one of the first few okay. uh, that did it. And he would test me all the time. He was quite a character. And uh, he would say to me, uh, like, he had a, a huge building, a commercial building in the Bowery of New York. And he said to me, you know, well, we were in his basement. People like us always hang around the basement. And he said, what was this place before it was my studio? And I just looked around and I said, it was a factory. And he goes, go on. And I told him where the machines were, what the people looked like. And I was telling him a complete diagram of what the place looked like years ago, probably around 1940 or 1930. And I said that there's a man standing by the machine. I could see him and I described him. Now, 
there was another psychic that was in the room and she did not see what I was saying. And Engel just sat there munching on a small cigar. And after it was all done, he, he pointed to where I said this man was standing with, a, with an apron on. And he goes, I see him too. And I believe his name is Frankie. Wow. So, you know, this is a normal type of deal that I would see Ingo all the time. And he would test me. He wanted to test me all the time to see if I could actually see this stuff. And if I didn't, he would yell at me. He'd go, try again, try again. And eventually, you know, I got what he wanted. But that was training my mind to start thinking like he does. Viewing is in the word remote viewing. So you are looking at something. My recollection, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I said to Gary, there is something in my recollection about Carl that tells me that one of the clairs that he has that's strong is clear audience. Am I correct or incorrect that you hear things, you hear yes. words? Yes. And, and is that- Cognition is called. Are you stronger in clairaudience than in clairvoyance? They're both equally. Equally, okay. Because I we talked to another medium who said that he liked working with clairaudience because he said you don't have to interpret what you're seeing if you can hear the words. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And I said to Gary, I think Carl Petrie is strong in clairaudience. So I just wanted to double check that with you. Uh, actually, both. But you see, here's another thing. So I know I'm saying things that people don't want to hear, but this is the way it goes. Uh, there was a major network that met with me that wanted to do a TV show because they heard about what I could do. Okay. And I thought it was wonderful that more people could you know, learn about the subject. Mm -hmm. And we met at a, um, a restaurant uh, on one of our major highways here. And we all sat around the table and I started to talk and the glasses on the table all started to move and they started <laughs> moving towards the edge. It looked like they're going to start dropping. They kept real quiet when I was speaking. And all of a sudden they, I saw hands go across the table, grabbing the, the, uh, uh, the glasses and he goes does this happen often i says well it does I, i'm used to it these things happen i scared them so much they didn't want to do the show they, mm. they did not they've got this it. golden material and a guy who can bring it they don't want to do it they were put off apparently by the phenomenon of psychokinesis yes but as you were talking to them, I don't, it doesn't sound to me, Carl, like you were talking with the intention of moving glasses around. It seems no. to have been a byproduct. Yes, it was a byproduct and it, it moved. There was a TV show that was on the air, which I, I don't want to tell you which one, but uh, we were on Long Island, Long Island, New York. And they had these young students that were uh, doing ghost investigations. And so they had me and another psychic go there. And we're the real things. So we go there and then we were talking to the students and we said, you're looking in the wrong place. This is where you're supposed to look. And we started talking to them about it. And all of a sudden the students start to freak out. They got scared. 
So they told the producer and the producer ran up to our table and he goes, what are you people doing? They said, well, you hired us to be part of this. So we're just telling them that they're looking in the wrong spot. And we started telling them about what we told them. He goes, are you crazy? This is a show for entertainment. Uh, we don't want this. Yeah. He goes, yeah. you're scaring them. So we, it happened <laughs> yeah. one more time where somebody got scared and they asked us to leave. <laughs> we, we have heard things like this before and have talked about this many times. So I don't want to, I don't want to beat that horse to death too much, but the, the ghost shows frequently are about just entertainment. They're not about actually doing the research that is done in normal life. Right. It's like father knows best and Donna Reed. No, that doesn't exist. That is entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see a, an episode of Father Knows Best where the glasses are moving around the table. What's wrong, princess? <laughs> That's it, it seems oh. counterintuitive to me that producers of whatever stripe would bring somebody in who can produce these effects, whether by intent or as a byproduct of what they're doing, and not want to have that on film and present that to an audience that would necessarily be intrigued because it's so unusual. Right. But that's just the way it is. Now, yeah. I'll, I'll just say about the last thing I was a part of. Um, there was a couple that lived in New York City. Uh, the man retired and he and his wife and her mother uh, decided to move into their dream home at a state. And, uh, so they moved into this beautiful home. I mean, it was palace. Look up palace in a dictionary and you saw their home. It was gorgeous. It had an indoor five-car garage. Okay? Gives you the idea of how big this place was. Well, they moved into the place. And what happened is that at night, they would hear strange noises, people talking, people running through the hallways, and they got scared. So they're uh, devout Catholics. So they went to their parish church, which is in New, in New Jersey, and they spoke to the priest about uh, having some sort of a uh, prayer session or um, uh, exorcism to get rid of anything that was in their homes. So he said, okay, uh, I don't know about an exorcism, but I'll speak to the bishop. So he spoke to the bishop, and the bishop said, which shocked me, he goes, we are not going to perform that at that house. We're not going to do it. Then he said, you could contact Carl, meaning me, to go to the house, and we want to hear what he has to say. First of all, I didn't even know they knew me. But anyway, uh, I agreed, and I went to meet the priest at this house. Now, I walked into the house and looked around, and all of a sudden, I'm there like, it's not the house. I said, what was in this house when you moved here? They go, what do you mean? I said, was there furniture, pictures, anything like that? And a woman said, well, she said there was a African ceremonial shield uh, that was used in their rituals, and it was hanging on the wall. And I wasn't there. And I said, tell me about this. She goes, well, when we moved in and they, all the movers brought in all the boxes and the furniture, she goes, were you ready to go to bed? She goes, and the shield that was on the wall 
fell off. It was on the floor. So she goes, my husband thought maybe one of the movers hit it and it just fell off. So they took the shield and he wired it to the wall. And they started walking up the stairs and it fell off again. So he says, I'll, I'll really put it up this time. So he used double wire and he secured it to a great big, huge uh, stand that was on the wall. And he, he tied it up and he says, okay. So they went to sleep. The next morning they found the shield in the middle of the living room floor. So now they're getting scared. And uh, he kept on, which is strange to me, he kept on putting it up on the wall. And uh, I says, and then what happened? He said, well, uh, after we did that, he said, uh, we decided to put it in our garage. He put it in the garage and still the sound of people walking through their home, uh, the noise, uh, you know, singing, all kinds of weird stuff was happening. And I said, where's the shield now? He goes, we threw it out. When did you throw it out? They go, four days ago. I said, what's happening in the house now? They go, nothing. Oh, interesting. So there's a goodwill store where they can't understand what all the noise is about. (laughs) Well, you know, and and that's the thing I try to tell people. I mean, when I went into the house, I realized the house was clear. There was nothing there. But then I'm looking at these people and I knew they were holding back information. And that's when I started to uh, go into details about what was in this house. The previous owners had it. See, they think it's real cool to have this ceremonial mask and all that. Do you realize that a lot of those masks were used in rituals that that would uh, uh, make them the devil, uh, a negative entity, whatever, and and they're dancing around with this? And these rituals have could have been going on for over a thousand years. So that mask is holding all this negative energy, and here it is. These people buy it and they put it up on their wall. Very bad thing to do. Um, as matter, speaking of haunted objects, uh, there's you ever hear of John Zaffis? Oh yes. oh, yes, we've interviewed him. Okay, John Zaffis is a great guy. <laughs> yes. He has a museum uh, of the paranormal in Stanford, Connecticut. Yep. And uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, uh, we're you know very good friends, and uh, she asked me to go with her to the museum to walk through it off hours, and to get my impression of things. So I did, and I spotted a couple of things that really bothered me. And uh, I told them, remember, I was never there. I don't know these objects. And as I was picking up these objects, I was telling him the history of the objects. And he says, you're correct. Everything you're saying is true. Uh, But see, the, the thing is about people, they buy things like on eBay, you know, dolls or, or especially clowns. If you go through the Zaffis Museum, you will see a lot of clowns, a lot of dolls. Because remember, these are things that have a look of, uh, of humans on them. Right. And when you think about a clown, a clown is a grotesque human with a deformed face, weird hair, and uh, it's actually scary looking. And that's, that's who you have as a clown. And why try to tell people about, you don't know who had these dolls before or clowns. And I says, I want you to think about something. If you watch documentaries about World War II, about the concentration camps, 
if you look carefully, you'll see little girls who are probably close to death clutching onto their dolls. And you see them walking with their mothers, you know, heading for the gas chambers or whatever with these dolls. The big question is, what happened to those dolls? Were they thrown in a pile? Did somebody take these dolls away from the concentration camps? Now, all those dolls that have this uh, imprint on it, yeah, they're in society. Some of them are loose. Yeah. Would you really want to bring a doll like that into your home? I would go so far as to say, Carl, that I don't think I could put my hand on it. I just wouldn't even want to touch it. <clears throat> exactly. And um, do we have time for another story? Quick one, tell two, in minutes. two minutes. Okay. Uh, I was, without going into fine details, I was, went, I was asked to go into a house with a locked door in it. And uh, this old man had this house that was built by a company that demolished houses. So there was pieces of factory, whatever, within this house that he built. And when uh, I asked to go into the room because I was looking for electrical problems, the man came down, opened the door, and walked away. When I walked into this room, the room was not occupied since 1960. It said, Happy New Year, 1960. There was food on the table that was mummified. The liquor on the, behind the bar, because it had a full bar, a stage, and a dance floor, with confetti all over the place. And the uh, liquor was... was um, uh, all down in the bottles, they evaporated. And I asked him, what, what went on here? He says, in 1960, my father and mother had a party here. And during the party, she went upstairs to the bedroom. She didn't feel good. She laid on the bed and died. Ugh. My father came down here, told everybody to leave, locked the door, and has never opened it since you walked in here. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So these are things that I come in contact with. You know, because I investigate anomalies which deal with the paranormal. This is what I do. And I have to explain why things are happening, you know, in that house. Why are things kind of creepy? Why is the father very close to committing suicide? Mm. Mm. But, you and know, there's is, so many of these things I've, I've done. And you, you write about them. You discuss them at length. And I wish we had more time to talk about you and your career, Carl Petri, we're always thrilled to have you with us. You have a new book in the pipeline, and we will talk again specifically about that book the next time around. Great. Terrific. Author of The Absent Witness, Carl Petri, everybody. And stay tuned. We, uh, we have Christine Upchurch, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience, and then American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. And our theme today is The Loneliness of the Long Haul Trucker. So stay tuned whenever possible to AM 1150, your home for alternative talk right here in Seattle. Have a great weekend, everyone.